Hello, and welcome to Outside Inside Radio. I'm your host, Kathy Foley-Meyer, and this season we will be interviewing writers who contributed to the recently published book, The Sentences That Create Us, Crafting a Writer's Life in Prison. The book is part of PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing Initiatives. PEN America describes itself as, quote, a nationwide community of writers and literary professionals, as well as devoted readers and supporters who join with them to carry out PEN America's mission. PEN America advocates for writers under threat worldwide and public policies that bolster freedom of speech and offers platforms to lift up the work and views of those whose voices have too often gone unheard or been ignored. We're going to spend the entire season talking with writers from the book, and today I'm speaking with Raquel Almazan and Alejo Rodriguez. Raquel's chapter is entitled A Letter to My Ancestors, and Alejo's is And Still I Write, Creative Expression for Self-Advocacy. Welcome to both of you. We're really excited that you're here. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to ask each of you, and I'll start um, in alphabetical order with Raquel. <laughs> can you share, last name that is, can you share with our audience a little bit about your journey to becoming a writer? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. The environment that I grew up in, um, my parents never asked me what I wanted to do. And I think the my, my journey connecting to literary arts was very... Um, self-generated. Uh, I grew up in a, in a lot of violence, and so my relationship with books was very profound. I remember spending a lot of time in the library, and there was something about if I read more books that somehow this was going to make my life better. And this was, I think it was, it was just like a strange relationship I had with the, the literature that I could consume. So that was really my first relationship to writing, and it wasn't until I had the opportunity to make theater that I was able to write on my feet, so to speak, um, and that I could see words realized. Um, there was a point where I felt literature was a little bit useless if it wasn't in the bodies of people. And I think for me, that's when I found theater, where language and the body and identity came together. And I was really enthralled by that. And I started to write plays at a very young age, encouraged by some young theater you know, teachers. And then I began my journey focusing on playwriting and performance in, in undergrad. And my focus was writing about the narratives of, of women. So did it feel safer in some ways to put parts of yourself in characters that you were creating as opposed to writing fiction or putting them into a like novel form or short story form or something like that? I absolutely. I think that I had been so um, dismissed as a, as a, as a human being. And the moments where I felt empowered were actually when I was in, when I was in conflict, when I was fight, you know, either I was fighting with my father, I was fighting with my brother, I was fighting with men on the street. And that language that I generated while I was in these battles became a place of empowerment for me. And so I, I you know, thought, wow, here's a space where I could battle not only on the street or in my house, like there was another space in which I could battle with words. Right. And it's interesting, I think, that your power comes from the interaction with other human beings, you know, as opposed to a lot of times I think people think of writers as 
you know, they sit in a room by themselves and things percolate for many, 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 many years. And then they sort of flush out on the page. But you, it seems like you tapped into that, you know, energy of exchange with other human beings really quickly. That's, that's really interesting. So Alejo, I'm going to ask you the same question about your journey to the life of a writer. Yeah, I think, you know, early on, it started out with um, wanting to rhyme hip hop, <laughs> right? Just getting it out. Yeah. And then, you know, also realizing that I could say the same things over and over again, but if I put it in writing, there was a certain level of acknowledgement. I know there's a certain power. Right. In it. You know, I didn't, I didn't say I own it. I didn't own right. the power right away, but I, I witnessed it. You know, that when you're able to say the same things, but putting it in writing and uh, how it lands on others, people engage you differently. And and I was I noticed that the I think what captures part of my my my, my writing experience and how I kind of leaned off into it. I was in a poetry group while inside um, mm-hmm. in prison in New York, and there was an argument over the death penalty. Mm-hmm. I don't know how the discussion came up. But the professor at that time was just dead set against, you know, the death penalty as a whole. And this conversation went back and forth. And all I heard was about the statistics and this and how the death penalty and, and it's racist and most individuals, you know, mental health issues, like all these stats. Right. right? And, and all these other arguments that the guy had and opposed to it. And there was a part of me that said, that felt there's something missing in this argument. Like there's something about just sharing these facts mm-hmm. that's capturing what this experience really was. And so I actually, I wrote a poem, a fictitious, you know, a poem based on, you know, a third person narrative, fictitious narrative. When the teacher read it, she started talking to me that the third person was a real person. And I realized, wait a minute, there's something happening here. Like right. she was really engaged with this work. So I think, you know, for me, in part, in putting it all together, like my journey was one, wanting to express the way I wanted to express myself without right. any other, any other, you know, expectations. I kind of felt like writing poetry was actually gave me a license to just write however I wanted to write. Like I didn't need to have grammar. I kind of thought all that, right? But <laughs> that's not the truth. I learned that later. Um, however, um, it was just a matter of just being, let it go, letting it go. And I started realizing there was a lot of, a lot of my own anger in that process. And I needed to let some of it go. But I also realized just getting consumed with that thought of me was not enough. And so that like that that experience of identifying that issue of the death penalty between the yeah. two extremes. Is it, and I started realizing there's so much of this prison experience that speaks about our humanity mm-hmm. that we never talk about. Usually we hear yeah. stories about people in prison. It's just like three or four different, you know, storylines. A person convicted, innocent, right? Gang violence. It's usually just that, right? Yeah, that or they escape, right? Which is a, which is a completely different drama narrative. Yeah, and not to say that those issues don't happen. No, yeah, they, they do. do. I'm not trying to minimize or, but that's not all 
that happens. And both of you actually in your discussion of your journey have, you know, pointed to the healing aspects of art and writing. And I think that's um, an aspect that doesn't really get covered enough in some in some ways or used enough. Because when you were talking about your about the death penalty discussion and each side being armed with their statistics and you you realize what's missing is the sort of humanity, the, the direct co- connection to humanity throughout. Because nowadays it seems everyone is armed with their own facts. So when we have a dispute, we just, we show up and we throw our facts and statistics at each other. And then it's like, okay, we've had this discussion. And then we both sort of retreat to our various sides. And there's, there's kind of a lack of true engagement. And I feel like the work that you guys are both doing actually makes that engagement more possible, but you have to let go of your, of our obsession with statistics yeah i think it requires a level of vulnerability that's yes yes vulnerability and to to look at what was the the impact on the um on individuals and collectives communities Um, so i think and i think that's part of part of the issue is that we are looking as at people as statistics we are Looking at the full human, right? The the the, the past. I'd let you and I were talking a little bit um, earlier about the influences of trauma, um, what that person carries with them, um, that has informed their experience, that then gets put into a category or, or a statistic. We erase the the, the nuances of, of that human being in order make sense of something that seems so um, so large and chaotic. Yeah, because it's easier. Because if we if we cling to the statistics, we don't have to ever admit that we might be wrong about something. You know, some really basic things about why we do things the way we do, why things are the way they are at present. So I I think it's just safer not to deal with the trauma. So that brings me actually to my next question for both of you. You know, if there was one thing that you feel is misunderstood or ignored about life in the carceral system, for those, you know, who are unfamiliar or untouched by it, we say our program is for people impacted by the justice system. But my thing is everyone is impacted by the justice system. You know, there there isn't one person on the planet who isn't affected by it. So... Um, I feel like it's kind of a misnomer, but I feel like we also have to communicate it to people who actually have the power to make those changes and we have to advocate for those changes. So what would you say would be the one thing you would want, you know, that larger audience to know or people on the outside to know? I think back after facilitating in, in incarcerated spaces for 22 years and having personal family members incarcerated and the criminalization of surviving is my what I continue to come back to. The moment I stepped into that space, the realization that I had one sliver of support more (laughs) than another participant that was incarcerated, that we were the same age. Right. And that I had just a little bit more support. Right. The response to 
the violence that I enacted in order to survive and the violence that she enacted in order to survive were were circumstantial. And it, it was almost like you, you're splitting hairs at that point. And that it, then it's the nuances of the supports systems that each individual holds. I continue to come back to that because all of the women that were together for almost eight years in this artistic program had all had very similar uh, traumatic backgrounds and everyone had were responding in different ways but there was no space for them in their communities there was no space to hold that trauma right. and so they were put into this other space and we continued we our amazement continued to come back and, and you know one woman said she goes I this I had to it wasn't until I'm incarcerated that I was able to have this have a, a a space where I could process with others who had experienced this. Right. But at the cost of losing my family, at the cost of losing my career trajectory. But that this idea of space mm-hmm. and attention to me was the one thing that I, I continued to come back to was like the women survived and they were criminalized for surviving. That phrase is really interesting and really compelling. And and do you think to counteract that criminalization, is it compassion that we need, like at a at a sort of not only at a personal level, but as a sort of institutional level? I mean, is it is it the humanity of compassion that will counteract that criminalization or is it something else? I think it's accountability when harm is when harm is com- committed against um, these for me it was it was young young people. Uh, uh, boys at Rikers between the ages of 14 and 18, mm-hmm. all of harm that had been committed against them. Mm-hmm. By the time that they were 15, I said, who's, who's accountable for the harm committed against them? Right. There was no accountability, right? And so there was no processing. And so then they all of a sudden, they were all uh, lumped together with very similar experiences right. and very, very little pockets of space in, in which to process that. But I said, but who who was accountable to the you know, they say, well, we're holding you accountable for the actions you created. I'm like, oh, where is the space of accountability of harm done to them? Right, so, exactly. And then I, they're they're labeled and packaged in a certain way that makes them controllable for the society at large. Yeah. Because then we have to look at ourselves. Right, exactly. So what is it that we, what is it that's happening? What is it that, that we are creating or allowing to happen against the particular identities and bodies, the normalization of that. And then it takes incarceration to even have a space or a connection with others to even process what has, what has happened. And Alejo, what do you think? What would be the one thing you'd want to be put out there? Well, first, I, just, I would like to say, I just think that what Raquel said was just spot on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's most, it's most, um, evident like when we when we hear of women's cases when they have to defend themselves from being abused like this is really apparent where there's the criminalization of someone just having to survive a bad situation but when we like looking at the contextual like oh to get a contextual understanding how some individuals have grown up in certain areas you know they have been extremely abused violently or exposed to violence at very young age um, to the point whereas um, very little distinction between um, surviving and living or reacting, right, in that kind of way. 
and trying to be your own person. So I just want to say, I just think that's a really profound point that she made. Kind of just adding to that, you know, I think in two, this idea of acknowledgement of us as human beings. In so many ways, this prison experience, mass incarceration, not even as an individual being on inside, what mass incarceration as a whole has helped to create has been dehumanizing people. Like we no longer see people as people in order for us to get to the compassion that you were suggesting a minute ago. Like it's hard to get there if we're not even seeing people as people. And then we, and then we want to hold individual, which is really crazy, right? Because we also have in this country an enormous, like this crazy recidivism rate. Like people are going, really going back to prison. And we wonder why, right? And in many respects, it's the same social and institutional distrust has, has, oh, is still prevalent. Yeah. Like society has not changed at all. So simply wanting to deal with prison separate as a separate entity from society is never going to get us anywhere. We have to see it in connection and in intersections in society. And then lastly, it's not a one size fits all situation. Right. And so we tell these stories about prison and I've been, I've been in facilities, in a facility where it's a different facility between day and night. Right. Between the administration there and when the administration is not there, it's two different prisons, let alone one from one part of New York going to the other part of New York. Right. Let alone from New York to California, every between. So there's so, there's so many nuances to this. We need to stop having these conversations as always of a monolith. Monolith, exactly. Yeah, and then there are the ones that don't have arts programs and the ones that do, yeah. you know? So it actually brings me next, I want to shift a little bit and talk about the writing in the book. Um, and I'm going to start with Raquel again, because I found your chapter to be especially intriguing in relation to the work I'm actually doing as an artist, trying to connect with ancestors, my Black ancestors who are, you know, now in residence time in the Atlantic, you know, all the millions of Black bodies that were thrown overboard during the course of the slave trade. Your essay is a writing exercise where you say, how are your ancestors still present in your life or have you made a conscious break in the lineage between you and your past? And I feel like for a lot of people of color like me, yes, my ancestors are those people that made it to the other side and, you know, were enslaved and, and you know, built the West. But there are millions of people in the ocean whose bodies are, those people are also my ancestors. And I was thinking about your question um, because the residence time for a human body um, can actually be up to about 250 million years. So it means that when I'm in the Atlantic, I am with those ancestors. And I was thinking about how I would even approach um, your question. <laughs> and it was really hard. It was really hard. Can you speak to us a, a bit about that? Um, absolutely. Um, I think for me also, the, the act of writing was communing with the self, but the self that of those who have produced you. I kind of spin off of, of Baldwin, of those who have produced me. So many times I would hear voices or what we think our instinct and intuition. I was like, well, who's talking to me? 
because I'm hearing something, right? I can, I can, and so the act for me of, of writing was the act of listening, of really, really, really listening of who, who, what are the voices that were speaking to me. Um, and instead of looking for answers outside, I said, there's something inside that I, that I need to listen to. And many times it's, it, was, it was not always inspirational. There was darkness there. And I said, we have to listen to the darkness as much as we listen to the light. And so as we were, I was speaking to the women, I said, Let's, everything's about focusing on what is, what is outside. What is outside? I said, but what is, how can we explore what is, what is inside that we have not had the, op- the opportunity to connect with? And my mother had always been cut off from this because of this generate this I can think generational trauma of violence in women. And I said, God, it's present in this circle here. Everyone had these lineages of, of women that had, in a way, we were stepping into this kind of like ghost figure of what had happened to them. And so when we started this writing exercise, that was really the prompt was for all of us to listen to our ancestors individually. And then we put together the text. Right. So then the ancestors were speaking to one another. Uh, yeah, I'm wondering, I think that would be my next step because I, I sort of felt like I did go through that process as an artist. And the thing that was being communicated to me from my ancestors in the Atlantic is I am here. And so that's where I started my first art piece that I did about that subject, just kind of from that standpoint. So it's, it's an incredibly powerful question. So thank you for um, asking it in that way. And Leo, there's a portion of your essay that like really stood out to me when you stated, quote, the most important part of impact storytelling is engaging a listener or audience, whether a friend, an ally, a decision maker, or an institution like a parole board not the issue or injustice itself. That was the part that really struck me because I was like, okay, that seems like it would be almost the opposite. Like, I feel like, you know, as a writer, you want to, you know, say, this is the injustice and I have to draw attention to it. Mm-hmm. You know, can you, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I actually like Raquel's question better. No, I'm going to stop. Yeah, I just love Raquel's answers. She's great. It's great. Um, I Maybe I could do this some justice. Um, I, I drew this experience primarily, I mean, the, there's accumulation of different life events, but primarily through several parole denials. I went to parole board um, 11 times over the course of 14 years. I had got reversals from the from the judge, and all they did was send me back to go to parole board and get denied again. You know, I can go into the ins and outs of it, but I started realizing then in that process where some sticking points may have occurred that didn't allow me to connect with the people who I was I was talking to. Um, and those sticking points was speaking about justice, you know, trying to trying to connect the X's and O's, if you would, of my life with their understanding of X's and O's from the robbery murder that I was involved with. And it didn't match. No matter what I said, right, can always be trumped by, but what about the victim? 
and, and also started realizing in that process that the facts of my case didn't tell the whole story. Especially didn't tell the whole story of Alejo. It might have told the whole story of, it might have told a framing of the instance while I was in prison, but it didn't tell my whole story. I like the way you use the framing of parole as being like applying for a job that you you kind of don't know what's you don't you don't really know much about the job, but you're going to apply. It's the job of not being where you are. Yeah, <laughs> so. um, you know the thing about it, in New York State, right? right. Parole is an um, it's discretionary decision, so there isn't like right. a, if you do this, this, and this, you grant parole. You're going to have to explain yourself. And, and how you're connecting the this, this, and this to who you are today. Right, exactly. And they're wanting to know how you've changed. I can't let certificates of achievement speak for me. I right. got to speak for certificates of achievement, right? Right. Because they're and trying so, to figure out if you've grown by yeah. their standards of growth. And so for me, the idea of engaging the individuals and not in justice, not on justice, was just abandoning the idea that I'm here to make a case of my, for myself. Right, right. Because I'm it's, trying to be just. I wanted to be acknowledged, you know, kind of being acknowledged that I did this just thing. Right. When I abandoned that focus and, abandoned, and, and, and really just applied myself in saying, I want to talk to you about all of this. Right. right. And I really need to un- really want you to understand where I'm sitting at right now. This is how I'm perceiving all this right now. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm paraphrasing here. I don't want to go too much in details. No, no, no. But you're you're actually. I, I just I'm willing to talk about all of this. Right. And, you're making and, yourself vulnerable. But at the same time, I, I just want to share like why how would it, how would it even feel to be in this seat right now? I'm nervous, but I'm committed to want to get through this. And yeah. so this whole idea of reaching out, and, and in part, there's a lot more details to this, but in part, it was making that connection. That human connection. You're inviting them to connect with your humanity. I was asking them to recognize my humanity without even right. recognizing theirs. Right, right, mm-hmm. right. I was recognizing their authority. I was recognizing right. their power. But to me, power and authority people is just as dehumanizing. I have, I have right. no... They're not real to me. Why? Because they've been so disassociated with this pseudo segregation that we've lived. Right. Racially, economically. Economically. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So authority figures, white people in general at that <laughs> age. Right. Alien to me. Like I don't I'm they're just as alien to me as I was to them. To them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's their job to judge you. <laughs> Someone needed to break, like, hey, man, I, I want you to recognize you as a human being if I right. want to be recognized as a human being. Yeah, and, and actually that brings me to a question I had about your writing as well, because you suggest keeping a journal, but you say don't judge yourself, which yeah. can be really hard to do. How do you silence that inner critic that can you know, squelch something sometimes before it even gets to the page? Well, for one, people are people are different. You know, writers are different, right? Um, because of the way and where and how I grew up, South Bronx, violent, competitive. You know, you always got to be on point. I end up the 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 the. When you say on point, what does that mean? 
You always got to be on point. Like you always have to look like you have your stuff together, you know, or is that something else? I mean, but it's a certain degree, but um, you're talking about neighborhoods where drive-by shootings occur. Right. Where where kids get get killed from open window from a bullet. Yeah. So sometimes you maybe have to be on point. Like if you're going to play and you're a little kid, maybe we play on the floor away from the window. Right. Not just wanting to be cool on point. Like this right. is my, you're talking about seven, eight, nine years old thinking about survival tactics. I remember at nine years old, my first time going to school and my friend Herman wasn't there no more. Yeah. And no one talked about why he wasn't there no more. And that's the part that just carries the trauma forward. Exactly. The fact that we don't talk about it. And so you carry that and, and you go into these other spaces. And um, so sometimes it's just, it's easy to just be on point, project outwardly, but then that, that dialogue starts happening to you within. So mm-hmm. I need it because I was judgmental towards a lot of things outside of me. It was a way of, insulating my surroundings, being judgment as a way of pushing things away from me so I could feel safe. It's a twisted right. psychology, but mm-hmm. many of us do it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and many of us do it at all levels, you yeah. know, all times of our life because it makes you feel safe. This is how I'm going to survive. Mm-hmm. I needed to, to be able to write without judgment um, right. so I could find my voice. I was realizing that the way I was writing before with criticism and quick judgment, mm-hmm. I would end up repeating other people's voices. I sounded like I didn't sound like me. Mm. Yeah, it, it takes a certain amount of sort of heavy filtering to get to that part of your voice where you're, it's literally just you and you're not influenced by outside factors. Um, because writers are just really big sponges. I mean, I don't know if I was a writer before I was an artist, and I, I don't know if this happens to you, but often you'll be in a situation where there are other people around and you go into your writer observer mode and you realize you're doing it. You're just observing what's going on and you're sort of seeing it and hearing it, um, but you're you're holding yourself back. It's, it's almost like a reflex because you're observing it in a writerly way, you know, yeah. as opposed to kind of being in it and living it. So I think it's I think it's a writerly habit to, to kind of isolate in that way. So mm-hmm. so I wanted to ask you both to share some writing with our audience, um, if you don't mind. It it can either be something that you've written or something that um, a writer that has influenced you has has written. And um, Raquel, you want to go first? Sure. Um, and I just, I didn't have the opportunity to say how honored I am to be in conversation with Alejo. Every time that we're exposed together, I feel like, you know, there's like, they say that there's like, I don't know, thousands of universes. I just feel like another universe like opens up. And yeah. so I wanted to, to say thank you so much, Alejo, for, for being in conversation and community. Yes, I can see why you two are were put together for the podcast because you you are t- totally in conversation with each other in so many ways. I'm going to read the beginning excerpt um, from my chapter in, in the book. So I think it connects um, 
earlier points in the in, in the conversation, um, as Alejo was saying, um, of seeing the person, uh, and so I'll open up with this particular excerpt of a participant um, who never fully got seen, had been rejected, had um, a life sentence, and when they when they saw her speak and they saw her dance, they saw her for the first time and things started to move and shift and um, had, it was a catalyst moment for her release from a life sentence. So I just wanted to read a small excerpt from that. While rehearsing our final class presentation in a small prison trailer, one woman stated that raising a child is like, is like sculpting society one child at a time. It was a line that resonated with us all. The youngest of my theater class participants was serving a life sentence, tried as an adult while still a child at 14. The monologue she created for our performance centered on feeling complete, grown, and free of the burdens of her past. Her dance expressed the freedom and weightlessness of her spirit, ready to fly while her body remained trapped in the prison. As she performed, an ensemble of women spoke in chorus. Her statue stands in a shaded place, an angel girl with an empty face. Her name is written on a polished rock, a broken heart that the world forgot. The words written by another troop member added a layer of communal care to her story, underscoring the women's investment in each other, how each singular journey echoed the others. No one was alone. Just months after performing the piece for fellow incarcerated women, case managers, arts facilitators, correctional officers, and prison officials, key members of that audience, along with the legal team that had worked on her behalf for several years, advocated for her release. They won. Just a year and a half later, she finally came home. While this is a unique case, it proved to me the depth of possibility that the process of creating art and the active role of allowing others to bear witness and engage can begin to change the system. And that very power lies in the participants who lead and shape this new reality for themselves. Thank you for sharing. That is an incredibly powerful journey. And I love how her creativity actually allowed them to see her humanity. That's, you know, that's kind of what it's all about. So thank you very much. And Alejo, would you share something with us? Sure. Um, but if you don't mind, we were saying earlier, Raquel was talking about ancestry. Mm-hmm. I want you to just say, yeah, that um, our DNA shows that we're in constant conversation, like the color of our hair, our complexion, right. like all of that. Like we're in conversation with our ancestors in the way we show up. Yeah, and yet we still have our individuality, like our fingerprints and things of this nature. Right. Right. So um, it's a constant conversation, and we're a part of the conversation. Because we're going to be someone else's ancestors. 
Yeah. Right. No, and I really I feel that when I'm, you know, when I'm standing in the Atlantic Ocean, I feel like I'm in conversation with my ancestors whose DNA is in that ocean yeah. from hundreds of years ago. And for me, that's a really powerful point to create from. So, yeah. and almost overwhelming in a way. So thank you for sharing. Yeah, thank, and thank you, Raquel, for bringing us back to that, yeah. that concept. So I too, I'm gonna to share from the opening passage uh, excerpt from- I, Yeah, it doesn't have to be from the book. So if you had- No, I, considering, considering the dialogue that we had today, I really, would, I really would love to just lean into this one. That's cool. I love your voice because it's very, you you kind of don't mess around. It's just like you're it's like right there, you know, which is really cool. So I'm happy to have you share from the book. Thank you. Every poem is a love poem. These were the words of a guest poet who came to our workshop in Knapp. That is Eastern Correctional Facility in New York. My gut reaction was like, love poems? Man, I was here to spit fire, man. Call it poetry if you want to, but I was there to use my writing to sort through some real stuff, man. My anger, my distrust of anything institutional, my questioning of myself. Were my values really my values or just some things I adopted from other people? Why was it that I couldn't shake this voice in my head talking about how we've been in prison before, even though this is my first time. And here goes this poetry cat talking about every poem is a love poem. Yeah, I. The following week, when I came back to class, I noticed a couple of brothers who regularly attended the group weren't there. I, I wasn't surprised. There had been some chatter about how they wasn't feeling it anymore, that the poetry was getting kind of corny. Real talk, some of it was, but still I showed up. Writing was the only place where I could have that reflective self-talk without having to worry about someone else dropping a psych slip on me. And so I wrote and I read anything that I can find that critically analyzed systemic oppression. And I began to question traditional applications of commonly used terms, words like freedom, Public school had taught me that after the Civil War, people of African descent were set free. But when I look around me at the conditions imposed on black and brown people, schools, housing, health care, these conditions may not be a literal prison or slavery, but they sure as hell don't look like freedom, more like a, an unfreedom, if you ask me. Thank you for sharing. Now, I re as you were reading, I was remembering that and how sharp that was and, and powerful when I first read it. And when you were talking about poetry, you know, we sometimes think of poetry as being sort of a, a thing for wooing someone and it's very flowery. Um, but the love poem can also be um, a love of yourself, you know, a love poem to yourself, to love yourself, to make yourself visible to yourself and, and sort of reinforce your own humanity to yourself. So that's, that's also a powerful, powerful, um, or the power of love Agreed. in a way. Like I said, I've yeah. since learned and, and met with individuals who consider revolution, like love to be a revolution, right? So it's mm -hmm. love in this way is, is so much deeper. It was just that thinking at that time, 
that right. love was always flowery, right? That right. poetry was always this, you know, romanticizing. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in in and earlier, uh, Raquel and I were talking. Um, as artists, when we hear mm-hmm. about other artists inside prisons going through these processes, we tend to want to romanticize with the creative process. Yes. Right. Oh, some people even said Malcolm X even said going to prison was like going like that was our that was our college. Right. I kind of get it, but we don't want to give that. I don't think we want to give that impression. Like we need to go to prison to go to college, right? Right. So, exactly. But unfortunately, there's some people would own that. They they would want to follow yes. the process. They own it as a rite of passage that exactly. all people should go through. Of a cert, all people of a certain group should go through. And 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 yeah. sometimes with artists, we do the same thing. Yeah. Oh, they create. They use their time to create, and that is true. However, right. but that's not why they're there. Process, like, I didn't write to be creative, to be romantic, to show. I right. wrote because I was pissed off. I wrote because right. I was trying to sort through some stuff, right? Exactly. Some real tangible stuff. And so um, artistry doesn't always come from this creative nugget, right? right? Something right. comes from out of desperation. Mm-hmm. So like it comes from, I've tried everything else and I need to just get these thoughts out of my head before I go crazy. Exactly. It's mm-hmm. a basic human need and we shouldn't, have to have people, you know, behind bars to make great art. That's not that's not how the system is supposed to work. We're supposed to have a better society so we don't have to have people in that traumatized and go through that process in the first place. But yeah. Len you and I were talking earlier this idea that the process of making art or the the process of being able to process yourself is not a privilege, it's a right. Yes, yes. And the way we have it now, only certain people are allowed to process, are, are, are supported, I should say, for processing their pain. And it's typically not people of color. So, yeah. And when, it, when that is done and acknowledged, it's done from a distance. It's not done, yes. so it's done as if individuals are no more than being on the sideline of this conversation, not being in the actual game, if you would, right. of our humanity. It's on the sideline. So it's easy, it's easy to just throw flowers. Oh, how sad. And throw a few right. flowers at and you know, meanwhile people are cutting their wrists to say right. this is how deep the pain goes. It's in my blood. Right. And, and that's when you realize, okay, what does that say about the larger system that we've created that that exists? It, it's never challenged if it's, if it's ro- romanticization is also a method of disempowerment yeah. in some ways. And mm-hmm. artists need yeah. to be artists. I'm, yeah. Now I'm talking about artists in the free world. Right. Those who have the privilege, those who are helping people go to art schools, like these artists... Mm-hmm. They need to be really aware of what the of of the danger that that causes. Yes, danger. Yeah, yeah, because the system needs to feed itself. So, you have to be careful that you are not involved in preparing the food, so to speak. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, oh, this has been Raquel and Alejo. I really want to thank you. This has been a really amazing conversation. 
with you both. And um, I'm now going to go back and reread both of your chapters. And and because uh, I'm I'm still I'm still processing all of the stuff from the book, you know, in a good way. I don't want to um, I don't want to get too far away from it because I feel like um, these encounters that we're having in the podcast are better if I'm still in mid process. So, um, but you know, processing is a way of life for artists. So I'm always in mid process of something. <laughs> I think that's true for all of us. And I want to thank you for, uh, sharing with us and, um, mm-hmm. wish you both well on your journey as writers and human beings. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, thank you for for having us. And I'm also intrigued by the work that you were. You said your your uh, new work that you're engaging with. So I hope that you sh- share that. Yeah, uh, with us. As yeah, well. no, I can share it with you um, um, via email, and we'll have information about the. I didn't get a chance to ask you both um, about the projects. <clears throat> excuse me, that you're involved in. Um, actually, I think maybe we'll go a little long. I wanted to, before we, if you don't mind, before we close, I wanted to ask um, Raquel about uh, your project. Is it La Lucha, La Lucha Arts? La Lucha Arts. Yeah, you are the, you're the co, you're the artistic director of La Lucha Lucha Arts. Can you just briefly explain um, what that is? Sure. Um, La Lucha Arts is basically the kind of the organizing structure in which I, I produce work um, with communities. Often I'm either formally making my plays. Uh, I have a project called Latin is America, where I'm, I'm writing a play in dedication to each Latin American country and telling the history of that country through the lens of women, the suppressed history of women. through, um, and, and then I, I make a number of projects and events. That's actually how I met Alejio. Um, so in the process of making works, I often do um, a variety of community projects um, around the work. And so this particular piece, La Paloma Prisoner, is a play that was dedicated um, to the country of Colombia and takes place in Buen Pastor. And it's about a group of um, of incarcerated women who are um, get selected to be part of a beauty pageant and their stories and narratives start to intersect. Um, and that, that play will be produced in November um, off Broadway at a place called uh, Chelsea Factory. And it's been f- 14 years in the making. Wow. And part of the exercises in the book was how I built this piece. Oh, and oh, okay. this, this writing, writing to the ancestor was one of the, what was the way one of the characters emerged from this, this particular play. Is- and yeah, so from a small writing exercise, this, this piece emerged, and it's been a 15-year journey. Um, and I've toured the play to many prison facilities and, and different um, initiatives um, with the piece, and that's how I connected with the Legio, and um, we'll definitely be collaborating together on some events with, with the piece uh, later later in the year. Oh, awesome. And oh, I'm sorry, I realize I may have been mispronouncing your name, Alejo. No, Alejo. I think I pronounced it Alejo. You're right, you're right, you're right. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, I, um, so you are involved in a group called Zealous. Um, I was all over your website last night, and it was really interesting. So can you explain a little bit about that? 
Yeah, well, first I want to share I'm no longer with Zealous. I've now, oh, okay. I've now transitioned to Columbia University. I'm um, project director for the Center for Institutional and Social Change at, oh, Col- okay. at Columbia Law School. Uh, oh, okay. We've that is institutional change for sure if you're engaging with the law. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so tell us a bit about that. Yeah, created, founder, and co-created a curriculum called Battle, Breakthrough mm-hmm. and Abolition Through Transformative Learning Exchange. And what we do is we get um, 50% of the class law school students, the other 50 directly impacted social justice advocates, um, mm-hmm. incarcerated. And we examine the laws that were such as the 13th Amendment's exception clause and the 1994 crime bill, how these laws were written in non-racialized terms, but it, but practiced in very racialized practices. How right. does, so where does accountability lie? You know, um, the impact of 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 um, the prison industrial complex beyond right. just examining um, the exploitations of labor. It, it's so it's so uh, um, yeah. So it's it's it provides there's so many threads. Yeah, it, and it definitely provides an opportunity for law school students to have one. They learn about a lot of theory and a lot about um, the application of the law, but they don't mm-hmm. get exposed to a lot of the impact that people have experienced. And that too is important to, when we start talking about assessing what justice is, we also right. determine what's the impact of some of these things that people are experiencing. And so um, it offers the opportunity for the law school students to get a more robust law school education, a more comprehensive one. At the same time, um, I like to believe it starts to minimize and, and take down those barriers of, of um, institutional distrust that a lot of individuals from from oppressed communities tend to build. Like, and so we end up disassociating with institutions and we don't know how to approach them. And I'm hoping that, you know, part of this is also how we can begin to find ways to approach them. So this way, there's no determinations being made for us without us. Exactly. You're also, and you're creating a whole class of lawyers because the law is a powerful tool that understand all the different subtle things about our current system and and can approach them with compassion and the recognizing of humanity part that is often missing. I like to believe so. I really do. Um, the focus right now, we're, we're in New York. We're focusing in on New York um, mm-hmm. because we want to create a model for other schools and other lost in other states to do their own. Right. You know, not trying yeah. to be not trying to act like, OK, we we have this platform. We have this idea and right. I take this national approach. You know, and, and so really trying to exemplify what I think other other researchers or action researchers should do as well. Like let other states do their own, you know, participatory work. Right. Where you get into community members working with institutional individuals and designing some some real uh, participatory action um, research. Exactly, because each state, each region has its own particular set of challenges. So if they're empowered to kind of make their own change, you know, that's, that's how we make it better. Again, um, this has been an amazing conversation. And um, I want to thank you both, um, both for your contributions to the book, because um, it's an incredibly powerful book, Creating Community, and 
um, for speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having us. You've been listening to an episode of Outside Inside Radio, brought to you by Prison Arts Collective. Prison Arts Collective is founded on the belief that art is a human right and is dedicated to bringing the transformative power of the arts to people experiencing incarceration. We are based at San Diego State University and have additional partnerships with three California State University campuses in Humboldt, Fullerton, and San Bernardino, and with UC Irvine. Prison Arts Collective is a project of California Arts and Corrections, an initiative of the California Arts Council and the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Outside Inside Productions are a way to communicate with our participants and with the wider public through video and other media created as an extension of our distance learning project in response to COVID-19. Thank you for listening and tune in next week for another episode of Outside Inside Radio.